Welcome to the Lights Out Podcast. This is Chris Lights Out Lytle, and this is our journey to document the history of mixed martial arts. I've brought with me my friend, the MMA detective, Mike Davis. And together, we will preserve the history and hear some great stories from the world in the era of the no holes Bowl. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome back to the Lights Out MMA History Podcast. I am Joey Venti. With me, as always, the MMA detective, Mike Davis. We have a very special episode for you today. From Harvard Law to human cockfighting, David Isaacs is one of the very few Ivy Leaguers willing to get his hands dirty in this new and controversial business. The co-founder of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, he has agreed to share his story about the early days of MMA. David, thank you for being with us today. Great to be here, guys. So I have tracked you down from being a part of UFC 1 to about the 22nd event. Am I correct on that? Sounds about right. Seemed like quite a lot at the time, yes. Okay. So in essence, you are the co-founder, chief operating officer from UFC 1 all the way up until just right before Brazil, I want to say. Yep, exactly. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, you guys might not know this gentleman's name, but I'm going to tell you right now, all of the backroom stuff that we kind of concentrate on other interviews, this guy was the person making those decisions. This is probably going to be one of those don't want to miss episodes. But let's start from the beginning. How do you line up with SEG? So uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, of course. I, uh, you know, I got there through a, a kind of a different path. So, you know, I, I was graduating from law school and didn't want to be a lawyer. And uh, I was working very hard to figure out what else I could do. And uh, I ended up working for this uh, giant German company called Bertelsmann. Uh, it's a 50,000 employee media company. They owned Bantam Doubleday Dell at the time. They owned RCA Records, Arista Records. And uh, so I ended up going to Germany and working for them for a year. Uh, and I worked for the chairman there. And then I came back to the United States and was working at BMG and was trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do that was not going to involve uh, being a lawyer which did not seem to me to be a particularly uh, interesting career path, that for me at least. And um, my family came out of the newspaper business, so I was always very interested in media. Newspaper business was in terrible shape, so it didn't seem a good time to do that. So I was kind of moving through different divisions and departments, and uh, you know, when you have somebody like me, they try to get you to do strategic planning, they try to put you into legal, um, we put together a thing called BMG Ventures, which was a group of, I would say, non-core companies that BMG, which was then one of the largest record companies in the world, had put together. Merchandising company, uh, video game, license, uh, different kinds of uh, music that were sort of off the beaten track. And one of the companies that we had in that portfolio was called Semaphore Entertainment Group. And that was SEG. Bob had formed a joint venture with BMG to do concerts on pay-per-view, Bob Myerowitz. And so I, I started working on these different ventures and I realized very quickly that I wanted to be very much involved in the nitty gritty. Um, and so Bob, the, the, the Semaphore at the time, just doing these music concerts, had had some success with a big tennis event and was kind of trying to figure out their business model. Uh, Bob was a very experienced uh, entertainment executive at the time. And so we kind of had a, uh, a way to kind of put me in uh, to help try to figure out kind of the path forward. Um, and I think Bob and uh, originally thought I was some sort of German spy. 
Um, and uh, I think it took a little bit to sort of get over that hump. I was kind of the intermediary between a lot of things at Bertelsmann and BMG for a bit. Um, but after that, you know, I just kind of was thinking about how this business worked and how we could, you know, create a consistent, successful model. And um, that was really where where we were when I got there, which was in 1992. Uh, so we started experimenting. I could just keep talking, by the way. Or Man, keep going. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No, no, no. Keep going. Let yeah, I mean, this, this is important stuff. So you guys, you and Bob link up so bob had a company so bob yeah. had a company and he had you know seg was like an actual you know we had a head of marketing we had a head of production we had a head of affiliate relations like it was to set up to do pay-per-view shows and um i came in there as sort of the head of i don't know biz dev and you know sort of try to figure stuff out and you know and i quickly saw that kind of the music shows were really problematic i mean the way we were doing the deals, I thought, was not the best way. And I tried to restructure that. And also, you know, originally the pay-per-view business, you know, we were really thinking a lot about MTV at the time. And BMG and most of the, all the record labels really were pissed that MTV was this behemoth. And they were busy producing the music videos that was making MTV a giant. Didn't make any sense to them. Um, and so we were working on things in the other elements of the music business for example we had a deal at one point uh with liberty media which uh john malone owned and that'll come back again because uh, leo hindry eventually plays a large part in the history of those days uh to create a competitor to mtv um and so we were working on those things and the music pay-per-view was kind of an entree into music television i mean that was one part of the puzzle how could we figure out music television so we weren't totally beholden to MTV was what BMG was thinking. Uh, Bob had had a successful career before, very successful. He started King Biscuit Flower Hour. He was doing music specials for HBO. He was trying to figure out kind of his next move. So we, we put that company together to go, okay, how can we get our feet wet in, in sort of televised music and then turn it into something bigger? And it okay. turned out, Go ahead. Sorry, I see you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, when do the whisperings of the UFC and what they're attempting? When do you start kind of hearing about it? I mean, there are no there are no whispers of UFC. We we are the UFC. We invented that. There was no name of UFC. What there was for us was a realization that you know the pay per view business was. You know, I use this example a lot. Forgive me if I you know, a third of that business was, you know, theatrical films just on loops at the time. A third of that business was porn. And the other third of the business, which was really where we were, was like 95% some form of combative sport. We didn't really call it that at the time, but that's what I would say. It was either boxing or it was wrestling. So, okay. and then there was this little tiny sliver that we were in, other, <laughs> you know, P.S., a uh, little business uh, aside, never be in the other category unless you really <laughs> see how that category is going to grow. Right. Um, so we were really thinking about fights, like, and not just fights, wrestling. Uh, and I worked a lot with Campbell McLaren. Campbell was the head of programming. And, you know, we were trying to think about the business and in the programming. So from the business side, I really was taken I mean, I think we all were, but certainly that's where I came from with the idea of instead of being a licensee, which is what we were in the music side, 
we would go to talent, the talent would license us rights, and then we'd have to figure out how we navigated between everybody else's rights to being a licensor. We owned it and we were licensing it to others. Um, so boxing and wrestling had two very different models. Uh, wrestling seemed like a, a very interesting, successful business model um, with you know creating sort of a single league structure and having the talent as part of that. Boxing seemed like a very unsuccessful business model, but a few guys got a lot of money. <laughs> so yeah. we really gravitated towards the business model. That, and then we were talking to folks. We talked to AAA wrestling. We talked to a lot of folks thinking about what we could do. We weren't from that world, but we were interested in something. And that was exactly the time that uh, Corey and Gracie had done the Playboy article. I'm sure you guys have seen that. He's challenging anybody to fight for $50,000. And Art Davey, then his little minion, is making the rounds uh, of the various pay-per-view companies. And there were two large pay-per-view companies. One was owned by HBO, one was owned by Showtime. And Art had been there and been soundly rejected by the boxing establishment as he tried to bring in this Brazilian guy with his crazy form of stuff. And they called, um, their pitch was War of the Worlds. Um, that is what they were talking about. And so they came to us uh, and they sent their stuff into Campbell and Campbell saw it. And what we got was like a tape, I guess, a Gracie in action tape. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's raw, right? It's like on the beach. My someone, this guy has insulted the family, uh, the Gracie family. My brother is going to teach him a lesson. You see the brother. He's like little skinny brother looking guy. And, you know, the guy that insulted him is a giant bodybuilder guy, um, you know, and the brother proceeds to take him down, choke him unconscious and, uh, you know, slap him across the face. And we had this in a small like conference room. We were watching this. And by the time we, were, we finished watching it, the whole conference room, our whole company was in there. And I think that was really the moment that crystallized like what how powerful real fighting was because we were all you know everyone in that company had been involved in the entertainment business most in the music side campbell came from comedy bob came from music i kind of came from this diverse background of Bernersman and bmg but like this was just mesmerizing holy crap whole that's that's all i can say about that and that was how we got into business really with horion you know art was kind of the front man but horion you know, if you've met Horion or whatever, you know, Horion has a presence, you know, you know, you were talking to the man, no doubt about it. And go ahead. So you guys took it seriously immediately. Like the minute you saw it, you knew this is the path that we're going to go down. Was there any I mean, pushback? We, you know, we had to wrap our arms around what is this is, you know, oh. we were owned by this big German company. How would that go over? But we were from a programming perspective and sort of a business model perspective it really came together because like I said, we needed to be out of this like tiny little category other, and we needed to then be part of this combative. We, like we saw that that was an op opportunity. We didn't know how to do it. None of us were really fighters, but then from the business model side, I would say also it's, you know, we needed to own the thing and be licensing outrights, not go to somebody else and license rights from them and then hope that you can make money with just like a tiny margin or you lose money a lot of the time. So that was really the moment that was all coming together at the same time. I'd also say, uh, you know, that period of time in the early nineties was just a particular moment when like culture changed and culture changed from kind of the 
fantastic, like, I don't know, Michael Jackson era to like Nirvana. Like there was this shift in the world of like people wanting to see the real thing. And we were on that curve. I, I Maybe we helped create it, but I would say it all was happening at the same time. Wrestling was these guys had these crazy costumes. It was like cartoon figures at the time. So we were really very, and, and boxing was just as, you know, often is just a giant mess. So we were really counter-programming to that. We were trying to say, this thing is crazy, but we're going to put it together in a way that makes sense and that people will like and be able to do it regularly. I think that's one of the things I sometimes hear when I see other interviews about or people talk about the early days that, you know, we only knew there was going to be one show and that's, what, you know, we didn't know if it would be successful, but what we were planning on was multiple shows. Like that was the whole idea. Uh, Bob had previously started a, uh, one of his companies was called Thursday Night Concerts. And that was the idea of getting people into the rhythm and the habit of watching concerts every Thursday night. And part of our business, you know, what we were under, understood was it's a promotion. We're going to build stars. We're going to want to sign those stars to contracts and we're going to have the stars come back and fight again. And people will start to follow those stars. And that's how you build a successful entertainment business, a successful sports business. So that's what we were trying to do. Okay. So in essence, you guys advertise about three or four months out, like what you guys are going to start doing. Am I correct on that? I don't know We're exactly. What you, do you mean in the fight magazines and things like yes. that? Yes. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know exactly when we did it. That would have been art. You know, art was Black Belt Magazine, all the rest of them. You know, but we were, we knew... You know, what we what we wanted was some sort of diverse group. And we imagined it both in terms of like answering the questions of like which style is toughest, but also just the visual of guys wearing different kinds of, of gear, looking very different. And, and we were into that idea of it's all coming together and this is the one place you can see it. Okay, so at that same time, Pancrase was kind of putting the bricks together to build a house in Japan. Was there any like communication between the two of you or were you even aware of what they were doing? You know, we talked, we, you know, we did some deals with Pancrase a few years later, uh, a couple of years later, but I can't tell you that I was, you know, may have been aware of it. I don't remember. I mean, you know, when we first, when I first saw Pancrase, you know, again, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, rumblings that Pancrase, a lot of the, the, a lot of these were works. Um, oh, yeah. And we, so I think at that time, you know, philosophically, we were wanting to be sure people understood that this was real. Because not a lot of times when people said, we told them what they were doing. Remember, before <laughs> UFC 1 or early UFCs, they didn't believe this was possible. They didn't believe we were doing it. And so we really pushed hard against anything that had any smell that it wasn't, they weren't legit fights. And yeah. I think Pancrase initially fit into that, at least in sort of a mindset, but I can't say, I wasn't looking at Pancrase. No. I don't even know if they had videos then. Um, I wasn't, you know, what I knew, especially going into UFC one was that Ken had fought in Pancrase and that's probably where, you know, at least I learned about it. And at this time, I mean, little editor's note here, Fujiwara Gumi, it was just their pro wrestling. It was taking a lot of those guys doing works under Pancrase with some stiff fights. So it really, 
was it similar? I guess you can make the argument, but it definitely was not the same. It it was. Hey, remember, different. we put Pancrase on pay per view. We, some of our entertainment, did a deal with them, put their foot, put their stuff on U.S. pay per view. It did not work. Now, I think in Japan, these mixtures at the time were much more possible. I think that they they enjoyed that kind of. I, I just think that was just much more their thing. Real fighters. And, and suddenly that are in wrestling and then they're back and, you know, it just, it, I think that was more the Japanese model and we just weren't there. We were in the, this is these, we were still trying to convince anyone that these were real fights. And, you know, we came out of it. I like certainly I came out not out of the fight business. So I was like, you know, of course these are real fights and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure nothing looks like it has anything going on that like even leans towards pro wrestling. Now, over the years, a lot of things have changed in terms of how you can work together with pro wrestling. And I, I didn't know a lot about pro wrestling at the time. You know, I think I learned about it, like any bit of it, just by reading Dave Meltzer's stuff early um, and really came to appreciate everything that goes into pro wrestling. But initially, pro wrestling was already huge. And what we were trying to do was make sure nobody thought this was fake because that That's wasn't going to be good for us to go up against them and some of the people they were fake. We want them to go... This is actually what wrestling wants to be. It wants to be real fights with really tough guys. We've got that. That's smart. That's actually really smart, man. You got to keep it separate. UFC one. How involved were you in regards to picking the city in regards to where you guys debuted? Any pushback on choosing Denver? I think initially, um, you know, they'd held the Sabaki challenge there. Yes. Uh, and we knew the various, you know, we sort of had a list of places that we thought we could go. So either uh, the, the rules for that state in terms of uh, combat, combative sports maybe potentially allowed us or they didn't have a commission at all. Um, and so we, you know, they had just, I mean, I think it was within the last year they had done the Sabaki Challenge. Um, and, then, you know, I think Art reached out to them. And, you know, we found a venue, you know, we were in McNichols. I mean, it's a big arena. So I think it felt like, wow, this is like a real thing, um, you know, and that's where, that's how we wanted to present it. But I, I don't think it was any, like, at that point, there were probably, you know, at most 10 states where we could think, we thought we could definitely do this. Um, and so I think we picked the best of them. Uh, there was a promoter there uh, that, that was very helpful too. We often did co-promotion deals in different markets. So, you know, we sort of had everything set up. Real venue, which we were used to, you know, we were doing big concerts, you know, we were used to doing them at big arenas. So that made sense. A, a promoter who worked with WWE and concerts and things like that. So that was also well known and, you know, had to be somewhere. So it seemed like a good place at the time. PS Denver is the, ha the headquarters of a lot of the cable business. Uh, that did not escape our notice as well. Okay. So you were at UFC one in attendance, am I correct? Yeah. Okay, so what was the feel like in the locker room? And it's kind of a legendary story of pushback in regards to fighters and rules. Um, you mean the rules you meeting, at? or you mean at the actual event? The rules meeting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I you know, if you look at the stuff now, um, it's kind of a known commodity, I guess. If you see uh, face-offs, if you see weigh-ins, if you see rules. Uh, a press conference afterwards you know when we were doing it uh, initially like this was all brand new like all the ways that we were doing it, the rules that we were talking about were new um, how we were doing it was new so it was uh 
chaotic, I think. That's how I would describe it. Like it was kind of like everybody talking, you know, kind of had their own idea of what was going on. Um, the most remarkable thing from the that early meeting was Taylor Tooley, who was the sumo wrestler who fought Gerard Bordeaux. And he said something like, uh, you know, they were arguing, uh, there was some argument about some elements of the rules. And he said, I don't know about the rest of you, but I came here to fight. If you're going to came here to fight, I'll see you there tomorrow and walked out of the room. And I think, uh, you know, you have those moments if you go, but okay, this is the way this, this is going to go down. Um, but, you know, we were, I mean, I think in a way we were incredibly uh, organized given what we had to work with. But I think on the other side, it doesn't look, it didn't look like it looks now. It's not, it's not, it was not, you know, we were, we had a lot of folks who weren't sure these were real fights. We had a lot of guys, you know, like it was just a case, like a mass had come together with this idea that we were going to do this thing. You know, we had just, you know, come up with this name, Ultimate Fighting Championship. You know, we were debuting that. Like we did the artwork for the camp, for the campaign that we did with cable, the cable operators. You know, we couldn't find a picture of a fight that looked like what we were doing. So we took a fight, the guys have like gloves on, and then we blurred it. Still, I thought it was cool. Uh, but it was like there no there was no frame of reference for most for most of us. And really, I think for most of the fighters, there was a piece of reference. But like it wasn't exactly like, is this is this actually a shoot? Is this a real fight? And how is this all going to work? Because, I mean, I think the fighters had all been used to being jerked around. You know, rules change very quickly before a fight or no purse or uh you know, whatever else goes on in different elements of the fight and wrestling business and things that they had done. So, uh, you know, we, we, I don't think we came in completely with that. There's a new sheriff in town, but I think at least for myself, I came in with the idea of this is the way we should do it. And we were moving in that direction. So it was pretty hot. And in, in that first meeting, because I think everyone was, you know, trying to figure out what the hell was going to, is it really even going to happen? I mean, I definitely think the guys were like, they came expecting that it wouldn't happen. So now it was really getting very, very real for everyone. You guys had a lot of personalities on that first, you know, on that first card. Uh, Gerard Gerdo being one of them. The rumor I had heard is you guys tried to get Ernesto Hoost, but you guys didn't want to pay the money for him, and he sent Gerdo. Is there any truth to that? Uh, I don't know about that. That'd be an art question. I don't know what he is. I'm, you know, see what, what, what version you get from art. It's possible. We were after big names for sure. We would want, we would wanted bigger names. Um, but you know, it was hard to get guys to show up. They, many of them didn't believe that this was real. Um, and if so, you know, you know, the three fights that you would have to win to, to take home the purse I think for guys was daunting. So I, I, it's possible we went to Ernesto who wouldn't, wouldn't doubt, I wouldn't doubt it. Um, We sort of got the best of who we could get. You know, that was it. Okay. So Gerdo kicks a tooth out of Taylor Tooley's mouth, has two more implanted in his foot. And there was a meeting in regards to either removing the teeth or just wrapping them with the teeth in it. Um, Were you a part of any of that decision-making? No, but if you talk to Gerard Gordeaux on this bro- on your podcast, uh, or talk him ever. Okay, so Gerard I mean, is living in the mountains with zero internet. I've talked to a human being that says he's got constant contact with them. I even offered the guy money because Gordeaux, you know, like that's that's the man right there. <laughs> so this would be my impression of Gerard Gordeaux. He's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. 
And I wouldn't doubt that he would have fought with a, you know, a spear implanted in his foot, um, trying to get the money. Um, so I, you know, you know, these, this world, and I think probably most of your audience, you know, these are, these guys are different, you know, they're, they're very, very tough. They're used to getting hurt. They, they, they are going to push through if they can. So I wasn't there. I wasn't in the back for that meeting. You know, I was ringside for that fight. And, um, so I didn't see that itself, but, you know, I think it surprised me on the one hand, what guys would do to get in there. And then sometimes it surprised me the excuse they would use not to get in. So I think there was like this both sides where now I expected everyone to just be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go in there no matter what. And even if I get my ass kicked, that's what I'm supposed to do. Not so fast. Not every guy thought that was a great, great idea. Um, on the other hand, you had guys who maybe, you know, and Gordo would have been an example, you know, in the current scheme and maybe later on, not even that far into it, uh, we wouldn't have let him fight like that. Uh, okay. But in the early yeah. days, you know, he was really making the decision. We had, you know, we had medical on, at every fight, but he was making that decision. Yeah, so for sure. that's what he wanted to do. I mean, part of our ethos was, you know, guys can make these decisions for themselves. As long, you know, as, long as they're making informed decisions, I, I believe in, I, I really believe they should be allowed to fight yeah. each other. And, you know, like go. if they want to fight with those two now, Again, I think now you'd have a much different discussion with the the, the, the <laughs> ringside position and the committee, right. commission, right. whoever else it is. But then it was really like, you know, can he fight? Does he want to fight? And in and especially in Colorado at the time, that was really what was going on. Uh, the right. you no know, one was in our way to have him fight, and we were like, if he wants to fight, I don't remember the actual discussion about the teeth being implanted, frankly, but I. I can imagine us, you know, we wanted them to keep fighting. Yeah. And get part, partly in the first round, like we still, you know, that's, that's a tournament. That's a tournament. Yeah. All right. So you guys get through UFC one, you see exactly what it is at the end of the event. What are the conversations like between you, Bob Myrowitz, Art Davey, Horian? What is kind of like the backstage talk between yourselves? Well, I mean, I think I think our initial feeling is like uh, just uh, you know kind of amazed that we pulled this off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know that felt good. And um, that Hoist won was what Orion always said would happen. Like you know, he said Gracie. You know, he had he had been our our. You know, uh, he was really the mixed martial arts, which we didn't have that name at the time, the voice of martial arts in what we were doing, you know, and I, you know, we came in, I certainly came in thinking that there was a death that grip you could do, uh, some sort of zany stuff. And, you know, Horian really disabused us of that, told us exactly how, you know, how this worked, why his style. So, I, you know, we felt like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then you see Hoist, who was like about my size. Um, and you saw some of these other beasts like Ken Shamrock and, you know, you're not, what the hell, man, you're going to go in and fight that guy. That's like a daunting, but then we see that at least in that sense, it had gone like it wouldn't, it wasn't a fixed plan, but it was a, that's what we were out to prove. Like what, what mixed martial art is the best, what fighter is the best. And that hoist came out of it for us was kind of this. Yeah, I guess it would have been great if Ken had won too, that would have worked. But I think part of it was when people saw the fights, that first fight, they saw the kick, they saw the teeth, they went, holy shit, this is actually real. Like, I think people just 
took a, and I think when Hoist won, they took another look and said, wait a minute. This Size shit doesn't works. matter. This yes. shit really, what is going on here? And I think that really helped us in terms of the consciousness of people to have this, you know, relatively skinny guy who doesn't look like he fights anybody just badassing his way to, to our championship. Uh, you guys go back to the office after the first event. Like I, the amount of sleep lost, the stress, anxiety, just the questions, you know, looming in regards to even pulling the event off um, must've been pretty difficult, but now you get back to the office and the national media picks it up. Like it was kind of like a, not a dirty secret, but the backlash that you guys got was like nothing I have ever seen before. Like it was a dirty secret. Would you agree with that? I, I mean, I think it, I think it was even accelerated after we got a little more successful, right? I think at first we were truly underground, right? Okay. I mean, in today's world, people would have been sharing those videos and we would have broken the internet with that first, you know, first kick. And, but that didn't exist then. So people were, you know, trading videotapes, uh, telling friends about it, uh, you know, and, you know, that bubbled up. I think we were, what we were doing was, you know, we were in the business of doing shows. So yes, it was hard. Yes, it was stressful. But, you know, we were doing concerts, you know, we were regularly doing large shows that were not that easy to do. So it wasn't so outside the bounds of like our normal business. But I think what it turned into became like, you know, we did like over 80,000 buys for that first show. We did like almost three times what we had predicted. So, you know, now we knew, I mean, I think from our side, um, certainly speaking from SEG's point of view, like, is this just because it seemed crazy and people tuned in once? Or can we can we replicate this? And so UFC 2 was really the idea of like, is this really something fans like and are going to take the follow? Or was it just a crazy car crash kind of thing? And they checked it out once and now they're good. And I was doing a lot of deals at the time, like home video deals, merchandising deals. And I pushed a lot of folks into those deals right before UFC 2. And I told them, listen, this is, we'll know. We will be, you know, you got to make your bet now. But once we know for sure, all the prices are going up. So did a lot of deals based on that, which let us, you know, we were financing basically the whole thing. I mean, our wild promotions was doing some of it, but we were, we were really picking up the lion's share of it. And I think for us, it was like, you know, we needed to know how, you know, again, if you're trying to build a habit, you're trying to build stars, you got to do more shows and you got to, you got to have, so that was really kind of our coming out of it. We got the buy rate information and then it was a, okay where you know let's get let's do this again and let's let's make a plan for this and let's figure out how we're gonna how to keep this rolling well ufc2 in my opinion might be the most brutal savage contest ever held on this country's soil um you guys went from an eight-man tournament to a 16-man tournament but the doubt of the individual contestants brought the crazies out for round two like that second that second set of athletes was definitely next level. Tell us your experiences with handling that event. 
Well, I was kind of surprised that we were doing 16 fighters. Um, that was kind of a surprise to us. Art was handling, uh, you know, fighter relations. Um, and uh, I don't know, Campbell, I guess, knew. I'm not really sure. But, you know, suddenly we were contracting with more fighters than we needed. But we had a lot of great, you know, we had, it seemed like a lot of great matchups and a lot of great fighters. And so we sort of went, well, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. It was two men, you know, again, you know, tournaments are hard to be, eight man tournaments are very hard to begin with. 16, you know, is unwieldy and, you know, but we started to be thinking about things. Okay. If, it, if we can't fit it on the broadcast, we can put it someplace else and we could do this and we could do that. You know, you start to think about these, that things that really weren't in the, you know, in the forefront, at least initially that, and, you know, we knew more, having more fights was going to be better. Like people would like to see more fights, but we also knew having interesting fights, you know, having a boxer come in, having a karate champion. I mean, these guys show up, you know, it was going to build our audience. And so it was, I mean, I would never do that again, actually. I, I, I mean, at the time we just kind of rolled with it because we thought it was going to be a great show. All right. So in our interview with Art Davey, he in essence said that whatever the contractual agreement with his group and your group, um, it was still kind of malleable. And he had said that you guys had picked up the fighter purses for UFC 2, which is why he went 16 fights. Was, were you guys, I mean, I know, I mean, there was a fallout and we're going to get into art much later, but were you guys, your side, Bob, Campbell, yourself, were you guys ever on the same page as Art and Horion, or was there always kind of a, a give and take and maybe looking out of the side of your eye? You know, I think there were some things we wholeheartedly agreed with, right? So we were fully in line with this idea of real fights. Um, what are real fights like and how do we put on very real fights? Um, I think at the time, um, you know, for us, like it's a business. And that doesn't mean we're not interested in it, but it was a business. And so we're trying to run it like a business. Um, you know, and really, Orion... You know, when you when we talk about wow promotions, war of the world promotions, you know, I I'm thinking of it's really a deal with Horion. That's how we viewed it. And art was doing stuff, but Horion was the one that made that we made the deal with. And you know, it was really about his not only reputation and knowledge in the martial arts world, but it was about you know having his having a Gracie in the fights to prove that, you know, his point was to prove that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was the greatest martial art in the world, for sure. Ours was not. It was to say which one works and here's one, but we needed that, we needed a Gracie and we needed a voice Gracie. So we were very, we that's how we were viewed. And Art was on his own mission. Uh, Campbell, you know, those guys love the circus. They love it. They think that's the greatest thing in the world. They enjoy having it be kind of crazy and things like that. You know, from my side, I like a little crazy, but I also like it to be kind of a little more orderly. And I think what we started to see was that there were things that uh, we could do that maybe WoW couldn't do, or wasn't doing well. And so in the sense of like the deal started to change somewhat, that's what I would say. You know, it's a deal. It's not a malleable deal. You know, it's not a whatever. Uh, that's not quite the way I would put it. But I would say that things changed and we tried to figure out how to deal with that change because we were putting a bunch of money up and we needed to have a show. 
And we knew that. And we needed to have enough money to get good fighters. And we, you know, we were doing things to say, how do we get this thing? How do we make it bigger? How do we make it better? That was our thought process. And so to the extent things changed or we picked up different costs or picked up, you know, we picked up promoting the events. We did that because we thought we could do a better job or that, you know, we needed to be in control of more of it because we were putting up so much more of the money. Okay. So one of the things I'd heard about UFC too was that at one point you guys ran out of ambulances. Like the entire city had no more ambulances because you guys were using so many. What was the triage like in the back of that event? I mean, you know, uh, again, so my perspective on it is if you look at a lot of those early fights, maybe all, maybe every, so UFC two is the first one that John McCarthy worked. Yes. And my information, my information, just so we're all on the same page, it comes from Art Davies' book. Art Davies, Sean Wheelock wrote a book, and the ambulance story is comes from that. Well, let me say, I was a person that was very concerned about, and it still is, about athlete safety. And so one of the things I was always very focused on is that we had medical on site before a fight could start. So... I can't tell you exactly like it was there that moment when so many ambulances left. But if you look at most of the fights, I am signaling John to start walking and, and start to go because I can see the medical team. I can see them physically. Right. And so they normally going back and they would treat the guys who just came out of the fight. They would evaluate them and then they would come back out. And I never wanted a fight to start that we didn't have medical right there. So our, it may be true that all the ambulances had left. That probably doesn't mean that all the medical staff had left. No, 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 for sure. But like, from, I, I, that had happened. I wouldn't. I won't let. I wouldn't have let them fight. I would have held the fight until they came back. If they were, okay. but, they were, but we always, you know, listen. You you have, you don't have to watch a lot of it to go. There's a lot of you know. This is a dangerous sport. There are a lot of injuries that can happen. Believed and still believed safer than a lot of other dangerous sports that people take take part in but still a very tough, dangerous sport, and we needed to be prepared. And I particularly was very focused on that. Yeah, your pedigree, you certainly... I'm messing around with that part because, again, yeah. it just takes one thing to happen, and all the stuff you've worked on and someone's whole career or life is a jeopardy. You, you, can't, you can't mess around with that. And, and potentially your business, the place where you work. Business, too, but I also... Yeah. I, I worry that, like, you know, any kind of a... Yeah. You know, that like there was always there's a lot of there's risk there's a lot of risk and we wanted to be i particularly like i say like this is on my mind all the time was you know protecting the fighters as best we could given what they were about to do all right so man my crazy conspiracy had like i've watched ufc2 probably about two dozen times and at some point it appears that big john mccarthy he talks about not being able to stop the fights and him kind of taking a stand, but it also seems like somebody was on the outside instructing him when to stop the fights because sometimes the person in the cage was maybe a little too brave for his own good. Was that you? Did any of that take place or am I just kind of imagining something? Well, it's starting to really rain here, by the way. So uh, is that noise bothering you? No, or we don't even hear it. Yeah. Close. I'm just going to close the window. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think? That's Hurricane Hillary. That's Hillary, baby. Yep. <laughs> um. So we definitely would communicate with John 
Um, but I think John, like, I don't know if John heard us, you know what I mean? It wasn't set up that way. Like depending on what was going on. Yeah. We would definitely yell, but John wasn't, I mean, he's going to make, the, you, if you, if you, you know, John, like he's going to make the call. He's going to make, that's for sure. Um, and he knew much more about it, but I think that definitely there were times with fights that we were, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we were also very sensitive to cable operators and their fears that there was too much violence. So we would definitely be like on the side of, I would rather stop it on the earlier side of where a fight might be stopped than the later side. And that was also a fighter safety thing too. Um, because, you know, sometimes we'd put fighters in there. I remember when Vitor fought or someone like that. And I, you know, I, we, we knew what those hands could do. And we would, we wanted to be very careful about guys really getting, you know, how badly they got hurt in the day and something like that. Big John was always paying particularly like a lot of attention to Gary Goodrich as well. Yeah. You see, I mean, you yeah. saw that. I mean, yeah. you saw Paul Herrera. I mean, Gary, nice, nice, nice guy. But if you ever watched his arm wrestling videos or anything, I mean, you saw, I mean, his, the size of him, like he could generate a lot of force, a lot of yeah. force. And he, I mean, then you could later see him fighting in Japan and stuff. But I'm saying at the time, we kind of only had this little bit, but we saw that guy. We were like, holy, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, was legit. A, you know, you're, you're, we're preparing for, and remember, this is 93, 94, 95. Like, we're learning all these things about, like, these different kinds of strikes, elbows versus headbutts, elbows of the ground, you know, like, different types. And, you know, I, again, I, I, I definitely felt like if it's a real fight, you should be able to do all these things, you know, and fight And when people, when the commissions pushed back on us, you know, we really, SEG, myself, and, you know, all of us really felt like, you know, we were standing there saying, you know, this is a real fight and we should keep these rules because this is, these are what would happen in a real fight. That was really kind of our North Star. But I think for us, it was, it was, uh, it was like a philosophical thing. You know, I remember headbutts, headbutts were a good one. I mean, I think Coleman was the champion then. And I was like, you know, we can't take headbutts out. They look at Mark, Mark Coleman is our, he's using headbutts all the time. Like it's, and, but we would get this pressure from these commissions. We knew what the pressure was. And so here where you're saying like, you know, we knew guys are particularly dangerous. Yes, we would, we would, John already knew it. We already knew it. We were definitely being careful about that. And, you know, like we, but it wasn't, I mean, I'll, John is never, I mean, you know him, like you're not going like, if he hits him once in the head, you stop that. No, just be careful. We know what we're dealing with here. Yeah. And, and, you know, like at this point, there was a lot of cartoon characters in regards to personalities. And you kind of got to see who the real deal was and who was kind of fake in the funk. I remember the world of martial arts at the time, nobody knows. I mean, all these records, all these 10th degree black belts from these disciplines that have eight people in them. Nobody knows. Um, and so we were really, you know, figuring that part out. Um, the whole the whole Frank Dukes thing in that era. There was a lot of Mc, Frank Dukes. I don't know him. Oh, it's not, there's just, there's a lot of martial Good arts tournament at that time. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> and there was all kinds of, you could get your black belt on a, you know, with a mailing class. And there was all, you know, like it was all, and that, that get, let that guy build his business. I mean, I understood the concept of that, like and different and different martial arts, of course, had that same thing set up where, you know, fighting another martial art wasn't necessarily in the best interest of either of those two, but didn't know who would win or lose. 
But I think we were very in the like, you know, I didn't come from martial arts. I didn't come from, you know, I was really trying to sort of stay neutral, you know, and I thought that was the best way for the business side, the creative and business side of, of the, of the UFC and the production to be, I didn't come from, because I could see, uh, you know, wrestling guys were coming to me. Uh, they wanted to have a softer mat. Uh, you know, well, everybody had their take on what would be helpful for their, their sport. Because remember at that time, they all came from some version of a, one of those disciplines. And they kept, that was always their fallback. It's like, how can I do my discipline better in this event? Oh, so you were, that is really interesting. People were just kind of backstage. You say maybe a softer mat, maybe something a little bit more grip. Wow. Everybody, everybody's lobbying. Everybody wants it, wants it different. We changed the padding eventually. You know, we saw, we took out some of the padding. But we knew, like, anything we did would probably favor certain styles and disfavor other styles. So we, at, at least from our side of this, we were very careful. And, you know, I, I think sometimes I hear I, we were thoughtful. Like, we weren't just like, ah, put whatever thing you want down. No, no, no. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of thought went into it. And then maybe it didn't work, you know, or something like that. And then we said, okay, how do we do something else? But, like, our whole point was to kind of be – even Steven with this, at least from our side. Certainly that's not. That's really good. UFC three, there's a legendary, a couple legendary stories, and we've we pinned it down uh in regards to Hickson negotiating with the UFC. We talked to Bob about it. He had his version. Art they both had very similar versions. Were you privy to the meeting with uh Hickson Gracie and Bob Myrowitz in regards to Hickson demanding a million dollars to fight in UFC three? Bob told you he met with Hicks and Gracie? Uh, he said it was, I, I think they had a phone conversation or something. I would, they didn't meet. So, I mean, here's how I would say I recall all of that. Horion was our Gracie guy. Horion was our partner. Horion, um, and so Horion, you know, Horion picked Hoyce. That's how that went. I mean, Horion told us which brother was going to fight. And as I understood it at the time, you know, Hickson had come out with Hoist. I think twice he came out with Hoist, something like that. And we knew very well who Hickson was. You know, the, 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 everyone knew Hickson was, Hickson was the guy. But, you know, we had our Gracie. And yes, we would love to have Hickson Gracie. For, you know, we would always say we want best quality. But I think when people ask for outlandish sums of money, given where the business is, it's really them passing. You know, it's really them okay. passing. So I would say we were really like, you know, this was to me always a Horion Hickson thing. You know, you know, the various family things that go on. So it was really like Horion was our guy. Once Horion wasn't providing hoist, that kind of changed everything. But when Horian said, I'm going to give, you know, hoist, 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 you know, I don't think I, I, I don't remember being so crazy about it. I remember Hickson chasing my girlfriend at the time uh, uh, around the party at uh, one of the after parties um, and Horian having to step in. And he's, again, he's not a physically imposing guy, but his, he, again, you know, if you're around Horian, Hicks, you know, they have an aura. <laughs> they have a, yeah. 
the thing about them, you feel it. It's very strong. I mean, again, he was like a regular guy. You know, you were like, and, and but that was our guy. And so I, you know, I've seen this. So when someone asks you in an event where you're, I think our, what was our first uh, $50,000 prize or $100,000 prize, and they ask you for a million dollars, you know, I think they're telling you they're not, they don't really want to be in that event. But yeah. maybe it's only worth a million dollars to them and it's the wrong time. I mean, that's really how I, you know, see it because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't realistic at all. And of course it never happened. So you see three in terms of, interesting things that took place like UFC three is probably the number one Emmanuel Yarbrough Keith Hackney was on that do you remember were you ringside for the arcade side for that when the door flew open yeah 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 I mean I'll tell you this so when we started doing the matchups and we had Manny Yarbrough all the other fighters were clamoring to fight Manny I mean they desperately wanted to fight that guy yep. really yeah, yeah, they knew. I mean, they're fighters. They know. If they take that guy down, he's not getting back up. So it, that was really – and Manny uh, was, like, the nicest guy. I mean, as nice as nice could be. And, you know, I I always think, it, like, if you categorize the fighters, you know, there's probably this group that just – like, I think Manny was just so big that, like, he ended up where he did in combat sports – but I didn't get the, he was a body, you know, a doorman, a bodyguard. Junior college wrestling All-American, him and Tom Aaron. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm just saying he seemed like because of his physical attributes, he ended up in this sport. Okay. Okay. Not, fair. not the other way around. Like, I don't know, Coleman. Coleman, you know, this thing was designed for Mark Coleman from the get-go. And I always just think like he, you know, he's big, strong guy, wrestled, and he's tough. He's a tough guy. Uh, Ken Shamrock, tough guy. Manny, thoughtful guy. And, like, very nice guy. Um, and that's why I would say it like that way. Like, he was kind of a gentle giant. Yes, he could compete. And obviously he had, and he continued to do so. But I think everybody who was there saw this as an opportunity to take down a giant. And they knew how visually that would be kind of stunning. Folks. It, it, it's still getting millions of views. Right. Keith Hackney yep. and Manny Uro. I, man, I hate to say this because I, I haven't lined up for an interview. I think if that door wouldn't have flown open, I think Keith would have been in a world of trouble. Maybe, maybe. You know, again, we learned, <laughs> we learned uh, yeah. something from that fight. But, you know, uh, you know, we were doing these matchups. I think, you know, I don't know if Art talks about it, um, but he liked to do these kind of crazy, you know, he, he enjoyed circus. The, the circus. Yeah environment Campbell liked that too um so I think we definitely had that as part of our thought process of like what would this look like we didn't think that the gate would open obviously um but you know we were still early in that whole process of like did, did, the octagon it, and moving it around and all that stuff did it break open or did it just the person forget to lock it I couldn't tell you that. Okay. Okay. All right. Also you started this interview with in regards to saying that you weren't you're trying to get away from the whole pro wrestling feel. And the rumor I had heard was that you didn't allow props because props going to the ring would kind of go down that path. And chemo had a giant cross with him. How does he get that past, you know, get that through the radar? I mean, I don't know how it happened, but I will say 
Art later told me that he had some inkling that uh, Kimo had that, and maybe even had seen it. I think they carried it in in some sort of a bag. Um, you know, again, um, there's a side of me that goes, I would love to have props. Um, I would love to have guys wearing geese and different kinds of things. Um, but it starts to look crazy and messy and potentially dangerous. Because remember, we're still kind of in this environment where we've got these like fight camps of guys um, all around. Everybody has their camp with them. A bunch of guys that trained with them are also fighters or near fighters, and they're all pumped up. You know, it's a volatile environment. And so I think uh, just to be uh, kind of on the side of safety, we were part like that's that's we don't want people bringing stuff in. But also, like you said, like we were not pro wrestling. We didn't want to be pro wrestling. Um, I, I mean, I certainly had no idea that he was going to do it. I think it's kind of awesome now because it's so ridiculous. It's so like amazing. I, I can't believe that he did it. But then not so much, <laughs> you know. Harold Howard, um, Harold Howard advances to the finals because Hoist can't continue after the chemo fight. And Ken pulls out of the tournament because he only wanted to fight Hoist Gracie. Were you part of the backstage negotiations trying to convince Ken to go into the cage that night? I can tell you I had a lot of discussions with Ken and with Bob Shamrock. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think I was there for that part of it. But I will say... You know, it fits this pattern of Ken's, which was, you know, he made a decision somehow and then Ken did not change his mind, no matter what. Like, and, you know, that was a that was a part of it. So, you know, listen, Ken's a tough guy. I had been hearing the stories about what was going on at Lions Den. Um, I knew some of, I knew the stuff that he had done previously. Um, when guys like that don't come out and fight, you know, it really is uh, like kind of a shock because, you know, we bring them there too far, you know, and I expect them to like come in if they're physically capable of getting in there to fight. And if they, you know, but that doesn't guys get hurt. I get that. That's part of part of the fight business. Sometimes you can't do that. But if you're able to fight, you're in a tournament and you're in the next fight. I see you might see the guy across from you. Dave Beneteau wrestler from Canada very very nice guy was coming in he'd had a tough fight and he was looking at Mark Kerr in the finals and he just looked over there and said I no I cannot do it you know when I you know Ken is in was in a different cat but for most guys if you didn't do what I what I let's say from my side what you were supposed to do I didn't use you again yeah yeah if you personally, even if you were good, uh, most of the time, I just would say, you know, we would move on completely um, because there were a lot of guys that wanted to fight, you know, and we were, you know, the tournaments, especially, they're just so I cannot, you can't have guys who are choosing not to continue. You know, we're getting so many injuries, so many crazy things going on. We need guys who whatever it takes will go to the next round. You can't do it. Your leg's broken. It's falling off. I get it. But other than that, you should go in there and fight. Hoist Gracie prior to Harold Howard. Did you hear any any whispering of him passing out backstage after the chemo fight? Uh, there was a lot of talk about how bad it was, but I don't remember specifically about passing out. But, you know, you could see he was in a lot of trouble. 
throwing a towel in against Harold Howard after the bell rang? You know, again, I would say to you, that is not what I, I, I don't think that's the right way to do anything. Um, but, you know, it happened like stuff like that again, so early in our process that we were just, you know, we're just like floored and then we have to move on. Okay. <laughs> what are we going to do now? But, you know, I can't imagine that that is the right way to handle things. Okay. So, in essence, Hoist wants to pull out of the tournament, but knows that there's a certain pay rate once you leave the exit the tournament at a certain level. And he wanted to get the next pay grade up, goes in with Harold Howard. They throw in the towel immediately. Why is that not considered a loss on his record? They were announced. The bell rang. Don't know. Was there any negotiating backstage with Horian in regards to that? Certainly not a lot on site, no. Who, who ultimately made that decision not to count that as a fight? Yeah, I don't know how that was done, to be honest. I don't remember it. You know, I think, you know, again, like, he didn't, he didn't actually fight. I think it's a tough... I mean, you know, it's one of these... If we had a rule that said, if you do this then you lose the fight, then it would have been very easy. We hadn't come across this before. There was no, you make it to the, like, are you eligible for the prize money? Is that a loss? I don't know. We're just in, now what do we do? Like, that's the like, insight. Now what do we do? We're moving on. And like, we got to get the rest of these fights. In. Justice for Harold Howard. That's all <laughs> I got to say. <laughs> Listen, I just think it's one of these things where it's like, you know, it was so crazy live you know like again i but you saw he was that guy was you know he was completely spent and it was going to be impossible would they do that for the money sure a lot of people would do stuff like that for the money should we have had a rule that said if you do this but you don't actually pay you throw you know in retrospect yes but we didn't have it then and so i think this is still in my at least in my head it's less of a there's no like big plan about it as much as there is a now what do we do and how can we get bring hoist back you know like what do we do now what about joe san did you ever have any dealings with him a little bit a little bit i mean joe and uh, chemo and um you know they were like in their own world i i really feel like they were completely in some separate universe <laughs> You know, Joe, you know, not all of it good, obviously, but like, I just, like, I just say these were like in the early days, these characters would emerge, <laughs> you know, like we didn't know where they were coming from or what their background was. And, you know, we had openings for fights and we had, and we had guys. And so we were like, we were very interested in like these kinds of personalities like to bring them in. We were also interested in the best fighters we could get, but there was certainly a side where we were like, somebody's going to want to see this. <laughs> like, let's put that out there. See, you say that and me being on an administrative side at, at times in MMA events, I'm thinking you're like, yeah, this guy's not getting my phone number. There's absolutely no way I'm fielding his phone calls. For sure not. For sure. And, you know, like, I think there was a whole bit of it too. You know, we were in New York, right? So, that was where SEG was. Um, and, you know, we managed our stuff mostly from New York. And there was this whole, like, you know, 
Orange County, Southern California fight scene. Um, we weren't like in the midst of it. So I wasn't like going to gyms and seeing Joe Song. Maybe Art was doing some of that, I doubt it. But like, it just was happening. And these characters were just bubbling up from different places. And we, you know, we did look at the stories and as we looked at the fighters, we were interested in compelling characters. You know, we knew that we needed guys who brought personality along with the fight game to really build the biggest stars. And otherwise we were building stars around what we had to work with. We were doing that with Hoist's mysterious martial art from Brazil and this little guy fighting it. We're doing that with Ken. Look at this guy. He looks like he's the baddest ass you've ever seen. Uh, we did it, you know, we were always, and at least I personally was always in the mode of the toughest, best fighter in the planet was our goal to find that person. And and I was always trying to, and it could be a sneaky guy who wasn't that big. It could be somebody who was gigantic, but also good. Fighter. But that was always where I was headed in my head. Like, how do we get to that? So that when people think of, you know, in the early days, Mike Tyson was uh, still fighting and he would, you know, there was a point, he's like, he's the toughest guy on the planet. And we were always like talking to Ken, for example, about how he would fight Mike Tyson and how that would work. And you realize like, we've got the, some of the toughest guys in the planet. And some of them are gonna take Mike Tyson and beat him up as long as they don't get hit going in. And, you know, we were always, I was always kind of going for that. And so that these guys had characters and were come from different places was, yeah, not surprised, different countries. That was just the nature of it back then. And, you know, and they were all to me unknown. Like, I mean, I never heard of chemo before we, but, you know, before we had his application and talked about it with art or something, but like, you know, I never would have known about it. All right. So chemo and Joe son are doing the whole religious thing, reading the Bible, accepting donations to travel across the world and fight in the name of Jesus. It was, it is, you guys got to watch it. Like you have to watch UFC three from beginning to end. Another couple interesting backstage things were was Charlie Anzalone jumps in because he's managing Harold Howard. He's an early manager for the UFC. Did you have any interactions with him at all? Sure, sure. I mean, he was kind of like a old fight guy. That's how I would say he he was. I mean, what now he's on the Nevada Nevada State Athletic Commission, some sort of a role there. But then he was just a guy who like was around and was in the fight business and he managed some fighters and, you know, I don't know, somehow got involved with us. I wasn't, you know, I, you know, I liked him. I certainly dealt with him, but you know, I didn't have any, like, we got to have him or don't want to have him hurt. Like, you know, there were a few times with different managers or people that we dealt with that we did some business with. And then I'd say, okay, like we learned from that. Let's never do business with that person again. Charlie was always a good guy. Okay. Uh, what about, Chemo celebrating with Harold Howard. The rumor was is that he had to write an apology letter for that. Chemo? Chemo in regards to celebrating because of voices lost, no nothing. Okay. I don't think so. UC4, was that supposed to be held in Japan? Mm, I don't know if it's supposed to be. I, I mean, I would say, you know, early we knew... It wasn't quite UFC four, so so I come from this big German company, and we did a video home video deal with their Japanese subsidiary for our videotapes. And at a point in Japan, we had the number. And this was when home video was a big business, uh, so it's a long time ago. I'm dating myself, but I think we had number one, two, three, four, and five in the special interest category in Japan in the home video charts. So 
you know, we knew we were building a Japanese audience and we knew we had one. So we had started thinking about where else we could do this. I don't remember if it was UFC 4. We certainly didn't have a plan to do it at UFC 4. Um, I can tell you that, you know, when we finally did it, it was very difficult to pull off. There was a lot of craziness there, as you, you probably know a lot of it. But it was uh, it took a long time to put those things together. So I don't think we would have been really ready and been able to pull the trigger on an event in Japan by UFC 4. But that doesn't mean we weren't talking about it. All right. You're a Harvard Law guy. You know, somebody that the highest levels of education you've had, your social circle in regards to what they're doing as compared to what you're doing couldn't be more different at this time. Was there any blowback socially? Well, I just think a lot of people thought I was throwing away my education. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really what it was like. I mean, Clear suicide? Was that ever said to you? <laughs> early years after you graduate from school or any kind of thing like that like even people who aren't going to be lawyers are usually lawyers for a little bit like there's a process like and then they go and go in-house for some big company especially you know that was kind of the you know expectation and I was always a little bit outside of that because of my family newspaper business stuff so I was always very interested in being on the on the business side or the editorial side of the media business and I I, I just think most people like you know they just thought it was insane. I mean, that's really, I mean, I can only say that they thought it was insane and they just couldn't believe that's what I was doing. And it's funny now, you know, people will look back and tell, talk to me about it. And, you know, they like, as though it were always obvious that this would be a big, big sport. Uh, and as though they weren't all questioning it. And uh, a guy, you know, from law school, who's a very big Republican, uh, activist and uh big investor uh, like came to me at a reunion and just started peppering me with questions about mixed martial arts and about gracie jiu-jitsu and i thought this is just the craziest thing ever and they of course later came in along with silver lake and dell and part of the original deal um when the fertita sold and i just thought this is like you know these moments of like wow, this thing has really gone mainstream. I'll actually tell you, the other, one of the other ones, after I left UFC, I was so burnt out and I went around the world traveling and I was in Nepal and, you know, up in the mountains in Nepal, trekking. I was not, you know, meditating. Trekking. And, I, and you're in these like little, uh, I don't know, tea houses where people gather at night after you're trekking. Some are sleeping in tents, some sleeping. And I'm sitting around and talking to some guy and I tell him, oh, you know, I'm kind of recharging my batteries. I was just doing this really hard thing called Ultimate Fighting Championship. And the guy starts talking to me about Ken Shamrock. <laughs> I mean, I was up on top of this mountain. I was, you know, I was in Annapurna in, in, in Nepal. And it was just, I was like, wow, we really built something. There's somebody here that like, has any idea what that, and it wasn't just, oh, I've seen that. And I like, it seems very violent. It was like talking to me about Ken Shamrock very specifically. Wow. What's your opinion of Bob Shamrock? What were your interactions like? I like Bob. Um, I, I, you know, I, what was, you know, Bob was kind of an intermediary, you know, with Ken, especially uh, Frank too, but I'd say, you know, primarily what we were talking about was with Ken and, you know, Ken was hot headed at the time, you know, and, you know, read Ken's book. I, I mean, I, you know, we only knew a tiny bit of what 
going on. But Bob was always like a very reasonable, very nice guy. Um, and, you know, he's the one that told me like one can make, once Ken makes up his mind, nothing changes that. And so we were always trying to get to Ken a little before he'd made up his mind. But um, when Ken got hot, you know, Bob was cool. Uh, when we were in Detroit uh, before the fight with Dan Severn, uh, we were in a hotel room, Bob Meyerowitz, uh, Bob Shamrock, Ken. And we were talking about the rules and that the, the, the judge had said that we couldn't, you know, couldn't use closed fist. And Ken was just adamant that he was not going to fight, that he could not fight. He could not fight. He wasn't going to fight because he wasn't going to. And then what if he does do it? And then maybe he could get away with it and there'd be a fine. And Ken said, I, you know, I am a role model. I mean, this is amazing now, again, if you see the book, but he said, I am a role model. Those are the rules. I'm a I mean, now I think the irony of all that, but he was, you know, he, Ken, intense Ken, right before a fight is, you know, like he was livid. He's livid. And so Bob in that is always like, it was Bob Shamrock was always very, he's a very kind guy and very easy to talk to. Um, I never had any problems dealing with Bob at all. Um, so I, I liked having Bob involved for sure. Okay. So you mentioned Dan Severn. Did you ever, do you remember his manager, Richard Hamilton? Yes. Oh God, please. I don't have a lot of deep stuff about Dan. You know, Dan came in and it was different. Like Dan came in, uh, Phyllis was managing him at the time too. Phyllis Lee. Yeah. So Dan came in, I mean, Phyllis was probably 75 years old at the time. And like, you know, he was like this pro wrestling like thing, you know, he came from like another, another piece of this and he was deep in it. So whatever Dan was doing, didn't do that. Like he, he had come from a very different place where he was always active, always dealing with different people. I did deal with Richard, you know, I don't remember, I, I remember Phyllis because she was kind of a character out of like, I don't know what, I mean, very nice and very, you know, but like, I just had never imagined someone like that would be a, you know, managed wrestlers or pro wrestlers. So Phyllis Lee, just a little background for everybody else at the table, grew up in the pro wrestling circuit. Her early adult life worked carnivals, kind of speaks volumes of, of her background. Richard Hamilton was an early manager and trainer of Mark Coleman, Don Fry, and Dan Severn. And at one point, the FBI showed up over at Mark Coleman's house asking, tell us everything you can about Richard Hamilton, what he's doing, is he around children? He was in the witness protection program. Uh, something involving the sex trade was not supposed to be dealing with kids, got kind of caught up into it again. Richard Hamilton wasn't his real name. He like he was literally in the witness protection program on all of your VHS tapes. You know, listen, you 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 all work in the fight business. Like you get people from all over. Now, anything having to do with child abuse is is a totally separate thing. But you know, we have a lot of guys that have run had, had scrapes the law. I didn't know anything about Richard Hamilton at all. But you know, I think part of this world is that like. Some of them come, like Dan, as an example. I always talk about Dan Severn and say, I bet Dan has never been in a fight outside of the Octagon or another professional place. Because Dan is as nice a guy as you could, and he's very, and he's big, like, he's very big physically. Like, a lot of times I would walk around, 
and I'd be with Dan, you could see people like gave Dan room, like just physical space, even though he's such a kind of gentle, nice guy when you talk to him, you know, but then like all these guys, other guys came into this world and, you know, we couldn't control what every fighter was doing with everything. And so sometimes they came in and, you know, like I said, I, for us, you know, they were contract independent contractors and they were setting up their business and doing their training and doing all that stuff on their own. And so we were sort of dealing with whoever they dealt with. I remember Richard vaguely, but I don't remember having a deep relationship with him or having to deal with him all the time. But I, I mean, all these guys had camps set up and different manager related business people who were doing sponsorships. So it was like, you know, it wasn't any to us, wasn't anything new that he was in the witness protection program. Okay. True. That might be a new thing, but of course we wouldn't know. Yeah. No, no, just it's, it's just so bizarre. The different pads that cross in the fight world. Speaking of which UFC six tank Abbott, a star is born. Um, you guys knew right away that this guy had actual star power. But there was a lot of baggage with him. I mean, Abbott is, you know, so first of all, you know, Abbott's, fr I'm friendly with Abbott. Um, of course. And so, you know, he, you know, initially, I mean, Abbott was, had charisma. And I think a lot of our guys, we tried to manufacture charisma, but Abbott sort of naturally had it. And he had the story of the guy that just rolls off the bar stool. <laughs> right. Right. And he looked like that guy. And, you know, <laughs> also a powerful guy. Um, and so, yeah, Abbott, I think, had a huge, you know, and, uh, you know, but again, that first event with Abbott, um, you know, I really, afterwards, so afterwards, you know, there's problems with Pat Smith. And okay. I, yeah, they beat really, him up in an elevator. Yeah, what I was doing in this sport, dealing with people like this. I have to say, I really was like, "This is, this is not what I I signed up." Dude, dude, you graduated from Harvard Law, and you're dealing with elevator incidents with a guy that future child sex offender Patrick Smith, and then you got Tank Abbott that's rolling off the bar stool that is literally getting drunk at after parties and fist fighting there as well. Yes. Yeah, you're playing HR. What I would say for myself is, you know, uh, different people live by different codes, I would say. And when you dealt with Abbott and his guys, or you dealt with uh, Ken and his guys, you know, they've got a code. Now, you may not like their code, but they've got one. And you can see, too, that if you push, if you know, if someone breaks that code, there are very severe consequences. Uh, <laughs> Very severe. And fast, very quick. <laughs> but I think, I think especially, you know, like I said, at first time, and then the next event, when we were in uh, Buffalo, Art and I came into the arena with Abbott. And I mean, you know, you talk about a pop. I mean, we walked in with him. And before any announcement was made, we were just walking in. The crowd roared, roared. And I mean, you really saw the power of it, that that Abbott's performance, uh, you know, had like gotten him over and his character that, he, you know, it's not his character that that was who he was then, you know, like, you know, he was like a psychopath, you know, he liked hurting people, he enjoyed it and he was good at it. 
And, you know, people responded to that. And, you know, again, you know, you're always thinking about the good guy versus the bad guy. You're thinking about the muscle bound guy who looks like he trains all the time, Ken Shamrock, or a skinny, you know, and Abbott. You know, I always like those, like in my head, that was always the matchup that I thought was like, that would have brought the house down at the time. You know, really, let's see, let's see if it's Captain America or uh, I don't know, Dr. Death or whatever you might think Abbott looked like at the time and see what happens. Um, and that was really, I mean, I was trying to put that fight together right after the time Ken joined the professional wrestling. I mean, I really was trying to chase that particular fight. But Abbott, you know, I think also Mark Coleman, I would put in that category, big, strong guys. You know, often they were so much bigger and stronger than everyone else. I think, it, especially in the early days, it meant that, like, they didn't feel like they needed to really grow as much as martial artists. You know, I think they relied on their strength and the training that they had. And I think it sometimes, it turned out at the end for, like, to be a, more of a detriment because you had to be watching how things are changing, how different styles are moving and what different guys are going to bring, come with you at, come at you with. And I think, you know, Abbott would tell me he could never, no one could ever put him in. He's like, they just never called an arm like me. Now I, I truly, I've never seen arms like his either. So I didn't know, but I was like, I don't know. I think, be, I think people, I think when you get leverage on anybody's arm, I think it's really tough, but he really believed that. He believed nobody could do it. What was like Tito Ortiz was part of his entourage. What was your early impression of him? You know, Tito was just part of Abbott's crew at that point. I knew Tito was wrestling. Um, and you know, but Abbott had this crew of guys that he trained with and palled around with, and uh Tito was kind of the youngest of them, and you know, eventually obviously we put Tito in the UFC. Um, and his first fight, he didn't get paid, but I think what we were, you know, I, we put Paul Herrera in, you know, Paul's famous for his fight with Gary Goodridge, or maybe famous is the wrong way to frame that, but these were all talented guys. You know, Abbott would fight the three of them at the same time. I mean, that was his training. He would definitely have them come at him together, at least two. And, you know, Paul wrestled, Paul Herrera, now big, now he trains a lot of guys. He wrestled in Nebraska. Eddie Ruiz, Eddie competed in Abu Dhabi. Eddie's a smaller guy, but he's a very tough guy. And he had Tito. I mean, that was his training crew. I think, like, again, how these things were set up in those days, it was like a big dog and then these little dogs. And the big dog made the rules. So Abbott was the big dog and the other guys were the little dogs. Ken Shamrock was the big dog and everybody else was little dogs. Eventually, some of the little dogs don't like being little dogs. But it's also like everybody in there is like, Yes, not yesing exactly, but they're going by what the big dog said. All right. You mentioned Eddie Ruiz. Eddie Ruiz, just so everybody can kind of understand who he is. Like, if you've got this, if you're listening to this part of the podcast, you've got your so fight this. I'm in so the weeds of so many of these things. I'm sorry if I'm boring. No, dude, I love it. This is great. This is what we're all about. So, Eddie Ruiz looks like he'd be a little go getter on a prison yard, and he's somebody that absolutely could hurt somebody and enjoying himself doing so. He's a dangerous individual. For sure. And he competed in the ADCC and did fairly well there. I, mean, I think he took third. I mean, from my memory, legit. The guy's as legit as they come. Backstage. Let's talk about politics backstage. At this point, Art Davey is front and center, giving out awards, strapping up champions. 
um, really kind of taking the center of the attention in regards to with the fighters. What was the politics like in regards to, was everybody getting along at this point or was there kind of some give and go? Hmm? When, when exactly are you talking about? Well, probably, probably UFC 6, 7, 8. Well, I mean, to me, like we gave Art all these roles that were kind of like, uh, functionary roles um, and he liked it you know he liked to get dressed up and hand out big checks and um, you know he thought that was great and you know I certainly thought that was less great and so was like happy to have him do that um, you know again like we were making the decisions of how we wanted to set things up in New York and we obviously were talking to a lot of folks that were for us or with us as we did things. But that was really how, how it was going. And I think, you know, that was part of the reason for the split with WOW promotions, you know, and that was real. And that, you know, when really when we split with WOW, that was with Horian, right? It was like, we were no longer gonna have him determining what Gracie or if any Gracie is fighting for us. We were like, we're doing all the work anyway. and. You know, we brought Art on as a consultant to do the matchmaking. But I think, you know, anytime we had like a, oh, I don't know, we did Ultimate Fighting Alliance and we needed a, and we needed a commissioner for that, you know, we made Art the commissioner. You know, we just like, he wanted to be that like front and center of that small stuff. And we just wanted, and we wanted somebody to go to do it. And so we are, for us, that was kind of the purpose of those things was just, we wanted to get those done and we went art was like game to do those kinds of things make all the rules type them up you know check with, do all that stuff okay uh, it, there always seemed to be i i don't know i'm not going to use the word jealousy because that's not the right but there just seems to be like always a rub between the myrowitz side and the art davies side did, did those two ever really get along I guess that, I mean, that presumes that there was a Myrowitz side. And I think if you talk to Bob, Bob would say there was a maybe a Myrowitz SEG side and there was a Horion Gracie while promotion side. You know, okay. our, our, I don't think any of us ever thought, you know, that art was the linchpin of the stuff we were doing. And I think, but I think over time we realized kind of, you know, if you, you talk to art, you've seen art, uh, art, art has his own version of events. I just think he's, that's what art is like. And, um, you know, anyone that's worked with him, you know, knows what he's like. And I think that's for us, like we, we had seen that in action. So I think we already knew what we were kind of dealing with. And like I said, with Horion, uh, when I talk to Horion now, I'm still like, Horion is the, the, the man. He is the man. And he, you know, he does his thing and he just, uh, he's, he's, a, he's, the godfather, in my view, of all of this, with everything that the Gracie family had done and everything that he wanted to do. So I think the, the stuff that was the friction with Art was we didn't think he was very good at his job. That started it. And that's part of the reason we bought out WOW. But the other part of it became later when, you know, we found out Art was out peddling a competitive show that he said he owned the UFC and he was going to go do it in Russia. You know, and like that just kind of tells you. Like, Here, let, let, let's, let's address that. I, I, if you don't mind, so March 30th, 1996, Ultimate Warriors, uh, Buddy Albin promotes his show, who is your on-site coordinator in Kiev, Russia. 
what is this? How does it get back to you? Where are the, the landmines in regards to people's responsibilities doing what it is they are or not supposed to do? So Buddy was a local promoter for us. So that's what he did. Um, he, he, you know, we were in these Southern towns and we needed a co-promotion partner and Buddy was like the local promoter that we worked with. Um, and he brought us Oleg Tektarov. He brought us other fighters as well. But, you know, that's really what we used him for. So, you know, anybody that went out and did competitive events with us uh, that we, you know, and as we found out about them, uh, that was bad, right? I mean, that for us was crossing the line. And there were parts of it that go, oh, um, I thought it would be okay because of this or because of that. But really, nobody ever came to us and said, hey, I've got this opportunity. We're working together. I want to make sure it's cool with you or how we could do this thing. You know, it was always sneaking around trying to do stuff. And that told you that they knew they weren't supposed to be doing it. And so for us at the time, again, you have to go back to that era. We were always worried about other events. Yes, we were worried about the competitive piece for sure. But the other piece was we just didn't know what they were doing. We didn't know how safe it was going to be. And we knew that we were kind of the Kleenex of, the, of that world. And so anything that anybody else did would reflect on us. And, and in fact, it did, right? So like, and that I think was always in our, like, I was, we were always careful about that, but that was a big part of it. Like who, who knows what they were doing? What, what safety, what pre-fight check, what they did, who knows what the matchups were? Who knows anything? We knew nothing but we knew it could reflect badly on us. And I think that for us is always, always the worry at the time. And everybody knew that. So Buddy Alvin, how do you guys catch word of it? Uh, the rumor was that Andy Anderson had to bail it out. I know if you watch it, it's like IFC or Kiev, and they painted over a giant square, which was reportedly your logo on there because they were selling the Ultimate Fighting Championship, hoping that you guys wouldn't catch wind of it. So again, you got to go back to the era, right? The internet is in its very early infancy. State. Yeah, infancy. And information is tough to get. Um, but certainly, you know, there's a world of people who are following stuff. You know, Joe Silva got into this business, I would say, because he was an early conduit to a lot of information, but there were others who were out, you know, and so I don't remember exactly how we found out about that. But I mean, honestly, when you have Buddy Alvin and um, um, Andy Anderson out doing, like, we're going to hear about that for sure. And we heard about lots of different things going on. And, you know, again, we're still kind of a relatively small company. And so part of it is we have to kind of choose our battles um, about who we're going to, what we're going to go after and what we're going to stop. A bunch of stuff is happening in Brazil, let's say, like, you know, people can do fights. But when guys that are working with us are stealing our shit, our logos, uh, taking our, trying to take our fighters, um, you know, that was a very different thing. And that's the kind of stuff that really would, you know, turn a relationship on its head. Was art a part of that as well? I don't know. Okay. Okay. In regards to... Um... Art got fired right before UFC Japan. So that's when we heard art... And he was partnered with Ron Van Cleef. And so that was his out telling the guys in Russia and elsewhere that he owned the UFC. 
and that uh, they could use ours. And he was sending them our materials uh, as part of what he was doing to try to do a competitive effect. What were the conversations like, Bex? Like, when did you guys understand that art either had a foot out the door, willingly or unwillingly? At, at what stage of the of this process do you guys kind of understand that you're going to have to move on? It's in that UFC Japan planning process. It's right in that whole area. I got in touch with Peretti. Um, you know, we were sort of prepped. We knew we, we knew we needed a matchmaker. Um, and, you know, Peretti had been doing it and he had found some interesting fighters. And, you know, we kind of set all that up before we fired our, it wasn't going in different directions. We fired our, you know, was it just a legal letter or did you guys sit down? Well, I will say this. Um, <laughs> Cause in my mind's eye, he's standing there on the corner with his little suitcase and his, I don't know, cigar in his mouth waiting for the car that never arrives. Oh, like that. Okay. Okay. UFC 12, we're going to wrap up with this. We've had you for about 90 minutes right now. And, um, dude, I, like I audience, you know, uh, put them out of their misery. I agree. No, oh, no, no, dude, this is good shit, dude. This is fantastic. Absolutely not. Let's talk about one of the craziest things that any, any like staff would have to deal with and pull off. And it really, in my opinion, it showed like, when we do these interviews, we talk about the grit of a fighter. Usually it's when they take a loss and how they react to it and kind of the pushback. In instances like yourself backstage, UFC 12, February 7th, 1997, the event was originally planned for New York, upstate New York, and it got switched to Alabama at weigh-ins. Um, yeah. So, you know, you all know, I mean, you guys know, right? We had been working, I had been working with the New York State Legislature and helped write this law that would, you know, legalize and um, mix martial arts as a sport um, and in, in the state of New York and have the New York State Athletic Commission oversee us. And we've been working with them for many months. So we'd work with the Athletic Commission and we had this plan, we'd go up to Niagara Falls, then we'd come back down to Nassau Coliseum and, um, at the time, uh, one of our competitors, uh, after we got this law passed, um, announced they were going to do an event from an undisclosed location in New York City. Mayor at the time was Rudy Giuliani. Takes, uh, I think it took 60 days for the laws to go into effect. It was either 60 or 90 days. And they said the first day it goes into effect, they were going to run an event in New York City. Giuliani, from what I understand, goes nuts goes to the governor of New York at the time, Pataki, Pataki. And then all this stuff that we had worked months and months at goes quickly south. They pass emergency law banning us. Um, and we sue, we lose, we appeal, we lose. We keep thinking we're going to win. Of course we're going to win. We've been working for months and months on this. But the New York State Legislature is going to do what it's going to do. So... We didn't, so a lot of times in those days we had backup venues because we were in court so much. So this venue, uh, so we went to, so Dothan only became available like the week before. And I went down there with Al Connell, who was our TD on the show, technical director. And, um, 
and we scouted it. I want to say the weekend before, like that was the first, you know, we, you know, had only heard of it and there it was and it was available and we could put a hold on it. And so we went down and scouted it the week before. Then we went into the week in Niagara Falls and, uh, I announced it at a, I don't know, it was a press conference or a weigh-in. I announced it the morning. I think that would have been Thursday morning. I think I probably announced it. And, you know, we were all rushing to, like, figure out if we could do it. But before that, uh, we had changed our entire production team. So uh, the original team that Bob Meyerowitz had was really from the music business. It was entertainment-based. Um, and we were really pushing towards sports. So that was really my my thing and i was really like i just literally made this change we brought in concom uh long history dspn al connell's brother brute like we were this was our this was our move to like do these shows much more consistently with guys that know how to do sports and so we had had like a meeting with everybody who, like who was in the production doing different things jason cusson who was in charge of the octagon uh, al uh maybe even hard. I don't, I don't know who's at me, you know, like every group and I had everyone before we moved, it's like say they could do it because it was unprecedented what we were trying to do. You know, we were trying to get down there and do the show in one and turn it around in one day. So Bob was in New York uh, and he was working on getting, uh, leasing some planes for us. And we were, you know, we'd gotten the venue already. So we, 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 we knew we had a place to go. We had to figure out how to get there. Finally, that gets worked out. We have to fly into another city. There's not enough, the runways aren't long enough, but we're, but it's getting later and later in the day on Thursday. And I think the airport closed at midnight. I think it was midnight. And I think at, at 11.45, the plane was overweight. And, you know, again, all this stuff has come together. We've got the octagon, we got all this stuff, we've got this plane. So Al Connell and I go out there and we start throwing luggage out onto the tarmac. We just start throwing the fighter gear on the tarmac. Plane gets the, the, the below the weight threshold it needs to be. We take it off right as it hits midnight, and we're out of there. We just left the pile of it on the tarmac. Now, I didn't know what that stuff was. You know, it's not like Mark, like this is my training. <laughs> no, don't know. Just threw it on the tarmac and hoped somebody would come back and get it and fly it in the morning. But we weren't sure of that. Um, and I mean, all the stuff that went on that day was like us. Uh, yeah, fighting for the sport. Like we thought that if we went dark on cable, we would be done on cable. And we really, you know, New York, we thought was outlandish what had happened there. But we had sued and lost and appealed and lost. We'd done all we could there. So now it was like, could we put this on? And like I said, we just changed the crew over. So it really was like a very tough inflection point. I remember our former producer was there at the event and was saying, oh, you know, this can never be done. You can never pull this off. We did. We did. And, you know, I think, you know, when I saw Dana talking about Fight Island recently you know, during the pandemic, I was like, I'm a fucking Dana. How do we do this? How can we make this happen? And I think that was really the spirit of the UFC. And a lot of times, especially when you're like, we're in New York and we're the company that's doing it. You know, there's uh, the fighters have their own thing and different groups are all running around. But this was the first time I really felt, I mean, this was the most coalesced group of people trying to, everyone realized this sucked, but I think they realized we were doing everything we could. And I don't know if they totally knew that every time that this happened, but I think everybody saw just how fucking hard this was and that we were willing to do 
almost anything to get the event on. And then everyone did their jobs to get us there. Dude, it was did, nuts. It's nuts. Go ahead, Jordan. How did you get an audience on one day's notice? Did you go on morning radio and just give tickets away? Because that's impressive. Away. We gave them away. Um, and we used any means possible to let everybody know we were coming to town. And we didn't know like how many people would come. Eventually, I mean, it was a sellout. We gave the tickets away, so we can't recall really sellout. But I mean, it was filled. And the crowd, you saw, they were into it. Uh, wow. I, you know, sometimes, as you know, when you go to these small towns, they don't have a lot of stuff going on. So they're like very, they're thrilled to be able to have it. And, you know, but I think we used every means, I don't remember the specific tactics, but we were just blasting to try to get people in there and make sure we could do it. And the story, which was true, was, you know, they were painting the steps of the octagon as the crowd started to enter. There's so many other shows around this time that couldn't get an audience. You know, uh, your competitors that would come out, they'd be one fifth full or something. So it's incredible you guys were able to get people there at all. You know, we again we had the big name you know we were yeah. there first. we had the fight like you know at, at that time i think everyone was sort of trying to sound like us a little bit like especially if they were really like you know extreme fight whatever that you know they just wanted to be close to the logos often looked a lot like our you know like they were trying to be an image of us not be their own thing you know that took a little bit of time and then people started doing different types of fights different types of things that's all good but for us at the time, I think it was part of this, like I said, we if we hadn't gone down and scouted that, I mean, we, we it was less than a week. It was less than a week before. That's that. insane. It, 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 you, you talk about people ripping you off. King of the Cage had like a living logo opening up and closing the door that looked like the logo that the UFC had. Again, what we were faced with, you know, we had lawsuits. I just, I, I don't know if you, I, I did an interview about this lawsuit we had in Australia back then. And... I mean, you know, we're we're dealing with this all over the world. You know, that's the problem when you have a va valuable intellectual property. It's that you have to defend it. And we were out there trying to figure out where we would defend who we saw as, you know, where, where we had to because of the marks and, and that or where we thought we were, act they were actually coming in and pushing in on what we're trying to do. I'm still pissed at those guys in Australia. If I start talking about that, I'm still going to be very angry because I think they were trying to steal our stuff. Not everybody was trying to steal. There's a big in my mind. There was always a difference. They were though. They, they were, and, that, and it, it's an American guy that was a living on Australia. Mario Sperry was there. Like they had some like legit talent. We cover that in our Elvis Sinosek uh, interview, our first one, and uh, he's living in like Arizona right now. That guy. He came back to the United States, and I mean, you know, it was just ridiculous, and. Again, we were struggling to survive. So this era was the, like we were running on thin budgets. We were concerned about other events that were potentially dangerous. And we were concerned about folks that were using our trademarks. And we had to make, and I remember, I think that lawsuit cost like $50,000. And you know, that was an era we didn't have $50,000 to toss at a lawsuit. and. You know, that comes back to like, what could we afford to pay the fighters or what could we do? Like that money had to come from someplace. And, you know, again, I, I don't think at the time most people are aware of how we were fighting across the country in athletic commissions and courts. We were trying to do stuff and we were doing it around the world sometimes where we felt like we really had to had to go hard and defend these marks. All right. So, and dude, I've got a couple more questions if you've got time. Um, you had talked about 
the other organization in New York that planned it, got on Rudy Giuliani's radar, created this entire mess for you. That was Bad Okade Extreme. And John Peretti was the matchmaker. I think he had partial owner as well. Tony you, was the main guy, the money guy there. Bob Gucci, who, Bob Tony's son, isn't that right? Penthouse. Okay. Yes. Yeah, Penthouse guy. So it was his son, Tony Gucci. But you pick up the matchmaker at UFC 15. Was like, if you look at the playing field, to me, that's like when Art Davey, you guys took the matchmaking away from him. So it's like you, you kind of. Then we brought then we brought simultaneously. I mean, these were not like overlapping t- t- terms at all. Um, it was specifically to fill that role. Um, you know, listen, I think at a point it's like real politics. Like we needed a matchmaker um, and we saw what he had done and how they had put together, you know, they'd gotten some guys that we either hadn't known about or hadn't been able to get. Um, and, you know, Peretti is a very intense guy. You speak to him about fights. Um, and I think we needed like somebody who could just come in and take, like do that and who wanted to own that part of it because we weren't doing, you know, that wasn't what we were going to do. And we needed, we needed him. And it was, a, it was good timing for us both. Yes. We knew he'd been doing other events, but if he hadn't been doing other events, I would have known he could, you know, do, do any kind of math. Thing. Okay. Yeah. All right, UFC 14, the Republic of Kazakhstan sends Pulat Margalayev to your event. Were you guys getting political, like hoping to kind of bring in a new money person? What was the reason he was at the event? Uh, So at the time, uh, Kazakhstan was trying to assert itself as an independent republic and nobody knew where Kazakhstan was or what happened there. It was on the in the State Department's list of countries not to visit. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob and I, Bob Myrits and I go to Kazakhstan. Um and they want to do a giant concert event with Whitney Houston. This is a long time ago. Yeah. And you know, we're like, okay, um, big event in this place. We didn't know much about it. Um, and uh, we spent, I don't know how many days we were, three or four days, I guess. And we sort of take a look at like where they would do this giant concert event. We were talking about how we would, where we would get, bring the equipment in from um, and what it was like there. So this was during that phase. It was, we were always thinking about obviously potential stuff for the, the fights but this was like kind of like almost a separate project that they wanted to do a concert in uh, a Whitney Houston concert in Kazakhstan. And we were talking about how we would do that. Okay. So it wasn't trying to get another stream of money. Um, it was also the first event that you made gloves mandatory. That, but it was for a separate thing. Okay. Okay. You guys made gloves mandatory at UFC 14. That was your doings i believe was that for commissions or was it just try to uniform the sport with a, a certain set of like a rule set well i can tell you my own version of it is i i it's funny because when i talk to the bare knuckle boxing guys now i'm like you know that just that sport's just too bloody for me personally but um i see why it's interesting and it's safer i get it uh, it's not complicated but um, at the time, um, I I think we were again like if you want to wear gloves, wear gloves. If you don't want to wear gloves, don't wear gloves. Like we were game to have it be kind of how you wanted to do it. 
Um, but the commissions, you know, they that kind of uh, protective gear for the commissions was very important. And they wanted us to have gloves. And so at a point, uh, most of the guys were wearing them anyway. Um, and, you know, we developed different kinds of gloves. I think Abbott was actually the first fighter to wear those Harbinger gloves in, in there. But, like, you know, we, we were doing a lot of stuff that we, like, the commissions were forcing our hands, and we were moving grudging. You know, we didn't, like, go to them, and they said, here are the 10 things we want. And he said, great, we'll do all 10, and we'll be fine. We were like, well, we'll do this, but we'll do it like this, and this one we can't. You know, it was always that kind of pushback. Because, again, we had all kinds of different fighters, and we were, you know, we were busy trying to, you know, for what it's worth, like, I had this view, like, we were in the right. They should, we guys should be able to fight. And the thing our fans liked was that it was like a real fight, you know, like, and to have it be real, like, I don't think mandating gloves is the best thing for it. I think it's the safest thing for the fighters either. But I will tell you, I've been in the stands, uh, I've been in UFCs, other events, and a real fight breaks out. And everybody who's watching the fight, like in the ring or in the octagon, turns and watches the fight that's in the stands. Like the reality, this is what really happens is what I think always was the big selling point for the UFC. And so anything we did that took away from that, for me, was a negative. And it just was oh. also that it favored one style or one group of styles over another. And I believe that we should try to be as fair as possible. That's smart. UFC 15, it was Bruce Beck's last show doing play-by-play. -play. Was What was the reason behind it? I always thought he did a pretty good job. Love Bruce. Um, yeah, the... You know, he got the job at NBC4, and, and he couldn't do it anymore. Okay, it was on his end. Japan was Sakuraba, December 21st, 1997. Saying, you know, I brought in Mike Goldberg, and I know Goldie okay. has always been, like, somewhat controversial with people in the biz or whatever. But, you know, I love that he has a distinctive voice. I love I love that part of his, of his stuff. And I think a big part of what we're trying to do is, like, create this. When you hear the, you see the UFC, hear the UFC you know you're watching the UFC. Bruce was like a consummate professional. Like I really learned what like a professional play-by-play -play guy can do. Got color-coded index cards, you know, really like very detailed work. So I, I kind of learned from that, like what the real deal was. And, you know, we'd come off of like UFC one. If you watch the commentating there, you know how horrible it is. <laughs> I mean, because we were struck with this like balance of like either people who understood martial arts or were good commentators. You know, we couldn't, we sort of couldn't find both right originally. Then we moved Bruce in and Bruce obviously learned quickly and did his work to get there. And our team, you know, we built our team out of it. And then Mike came in, you know, things have changed, but I'm saying, I think it was like, Bruce was a, a, a great one we had him and really appreciated him. Fun guy too. We, we think, uh, you know, Goldberg was a fantastic pick in my opinion. Goldberg was great. And you know, Goldie then was right. such a young guy. Like, I mean, he's, he was like a baby doing hockey. Um, so he really, and he did it many years after I, I was long gone. But I think again, that they, you know, this was a small, it, it was still a, like a small undertaking. You know what I mean? Like the people that were in were in, we were doing this, you know, we were all doing this together. So it was, it was great to be able to find people that like could do the job we wanted and mo help them grow their career, but also help mold what we were trying to do. It, it, yeah, absolutely. Sakuraba versus Conan Silvera, UFC Japan. Um, they ended up fighting twice. Some claim that the Yakuza had some involvement in that. What is your take on what took place that night? Well, I mean, I can tell you what actually happened. I mean, we were there. I mean, you know, called an early stop. It happens sometimes. Um, and, and, 
you know, I think in the fights, you know, the venue started to really turn on us. And we were told that the event would end if they didn't come back out and fight again, that the, that the crowd would just leave. And, you know, like you're in this weird world in Japan anyway, especially back then, uh, you know, especially then. And, you know, we thought it was, the, I wouldn't have done it that way if I didn't, if we, I, I wouldn't have said, let's do it that way. But really, if they'd walked out again, we sort of faced this like death of the UFC style stuff. Like if the event literally ends because of this, we're all fucked. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not, Yakuza weren't working with us at all. It wasn't that, but it was our Japanese partners and the Japanese, you know, the guys, the venue explaining like this is about to happen. So you got to either do this or the event's over. And we chose to have the event continue. Yeah, Conan Silvera even said they were knocking on his door. He didn't feel like there was much of a choice. He was forced to go back out there. Yeah. I don't know if that's the way he felt. I like I said, the Yakuza, we weren't we had nothing to do with that. So like the Yakuza, like we didn't ha we weren't interacting with Yakuza, is what I want to say. Okay. So it was, it was us, it was our Japanese partners. They are not Yakuza. like we were just like, what are we going to do? If that's the way Marcus, I mean, I, listen, if that guy thought that's what that was, I, I believe him in some ways. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah he ain't lying. <laughs> he would know. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it was one of these decisions you make in the heat of the moment. And it's like, you know, if that event go, like if they literally close us down, is that better than having them fight twice? And we just made the decision at the time. No, we want to, we'll have them come back out and do it again. Sucky, not what I would want to do. Real life, that's what we had to do. Did you guys have to pay him a second purse going in? I don't remember, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we did. We it was have. supposed to be a tournament, so he yeah. was supposed to fight twice anyway. But yeah. Tank got hurt. To get to the next level of the tournament. Yeah. So we, we were, you know, yes, we probably paid him extra money, but I, I don't remember specifically. But, you know, we would have done, we were trying to make it happen. Live, on the air. You know what I mean? With a crowd in the, in the, you know, in the arena, like we were like, what are we going to do right now? Like, you know, and if that thing had gone south. So I, I, I would have guessed we would probably pay them more money, but I don't know that to be true. You were the one that reached out to Vince McMahon's group in regards to possibly him coming on as an investor. I don't know if you reached out first. I don't think, I don't think so actually, but you know, we had been dealing with, with, uh, Vince's crew on a few things. Um, and I had talked a lot with Shane McMahon, his son. And I don't remember if Bob, I think Bob may have reached out to Vince. I don't, I don't remember actually how it started. But you know, we were very, this was the point where in the dark ages, we were trying to figure out like how do we, what do we do with this thing? And working with WWE, then WWF made a lot of sense. And and I think they were trying to figure out something for Shane to do. Like that was, I think, the, the idea, like Shane would have his own thing. And we were kind of at the end, our wits end of like, how do, like we, how do we take this into an, another direction? And at the end of the day, I mean, it's, you know, obviously ironic that now UFC and WWE have merged. But at the time it was, you know, uh, Vince walked away from the deal. And instead he went after some of our fighters and signed them to wrestling contracts. And you know, I think it was just too hard for him to wrap his arms around real fights because he was so used to, you know, predetermined finishes and the scripting that he had done. 
And I think for a lot less money, he could get the UFC flavor into his organization. And I think that was his, you know, maybe it was something else more conspiratorial or something. I don't know. But I think from a business decision, um, I could see why he might make that decision. Um, you know, for me, it was one of the lot like things where I was like, well, you know, thinking this would be a good time for me to walk away. And then when it didn't happen, it was really kind of, uh, I wouldn't say nail in the coffin, but it definitely was like, we were, you know, so low on funds. We were running around in Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and doing these small shows and doing, you know, cutting purses and cutting fees and cutting, 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 you know, it was very, very hard. So, you know, WWE and seemed like a great way to get out of that. Um, and when that didn't happen, it was like, okay, now, now what do we do? And it seemed like a long road. Your organization after one of your business, I should say Zillow Entertainment. Zylo. Um, Zylo. You guys almost had Wesley Snipes and Joe Rogan. You were talking to both parties about having them fight each other. Right. So Campbell McLaren and I, who he was really the head of original programming, and Campbell and I often had operated as a tag team. So Campbell and I started this company, Zylo Networks, to target college students. And then we were looking at other stuff we could do because we saw that there was still stuff in the fight business. So originally we wanted uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Wesley Snipes. Um, and, you know, we started talking about that. And, you know, people, what, like, strangely enough, were captivated by that idea. You know, fast forward to this current era, and it's like this, it's kind of like a Jake Paul fight. It's somebody who's famous from something else. Can they really fight? Let's check it out. And I mean, all of a sudden, you know, this started to get some, get some play. And we were like, okay, so we were talking to both of their managements about it. And I think Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, he's not a real fighter. I say that with no, it just fear. worded. Is that any fear? <laughs> not real, and he's, a, and he's, he's a small guy, small guy. Um, <laughs> I think they immediately realized this was not good for them. Wesley Snipes at the time was living in Africa. And, you know, he had these IRS problems. Huge so IRS problems. And damn, Joe Rogan, you know, we brought Joe Rogan in. Campbell McLaren was good friends with his manager. And we brought Joe in. And then Joe said he would do it. And so then Joe went on Howard Stern and started talking about it. And that's how that kind of went out. And Wesley Snipes had this business. They were making, like, these small movies and he had all these uh, particular contract requirements for him at the time, how he would be paid and things like that. And so eventually it felt, and I think he also looked and he saw who Joe was. And Joe had been now, now Joe wasn't Joe from first time Joe worked with us. This was Joe a few years later. This is now in, I don't know what year it was, 2000 and whatever it was. Yeah, Joe had been training in martial arts for, you know, jujitsu for quite a while now and bulked up. And I think he saw Joe and realized he was going to get his ass kicked. And then the whole thing happened. He just still talks about it on his podcast. Does he really? I haven't yeah, heard it. Yep. Yeah, but yes. I, mean, we, I mean, honestly, Campbell and I, you know, we were always, we did another fight show for BET called The Iron Ring, uh, focusing on African-American fighters, teams that were owned by hip-hop celebrities. You know, we were always trying to find an angle on things to do something in the fight world because we knew the UFC was a juggernaut and kind of our baby. And we were, but we were more just saying there's, there's more room for some other stuff. So, you know, we poked around with the, Rogan versus Wesley Snipes thing. We did the show on BET, which performed really well, but BET didn't really want to be in the fight promotion business, we found out. 
And they didn't understand that we were signing fighters so that we could give them more fights and that we needed to keep producing shows. So, you know, we did the one season and they thought it was a reality TV series. And then they were thinking next year we would come back and do it again with no fights in between and nothing for anybody to do. Um, so it was a, a plan that was uh, didn't make any sense in terms of the fight side of things. But it was very successful on BET. It was the second highest rated series at that time that they'd ever had. It's crazy they didn't get behind it. Little John, Floyd Mayweather, T.I., Nelly, Joel Santana, Jim Jones. You guys had like an all-star lineup there and had the ratings. It's just they didn't see the vision. They had two pieces. One was uh, I wanted to go after Rampage. So Rampage was coming off his contract in Japan. Uh, you know, a lot of people here didn't totally know who Rampage was. If you weren't like really following the fight business. Um so I think uh, we had that. And then, you know, we, we had a bunch of other like things that we thought would really juice this up. Um, and, you know, BT just didn't see that. So uh, we, it was too bad. We didn't build off that base, but uh, at the end of the day, they just weren't, they didn't understand the business and didn't want to really be in the fight. Business. Right, why don't we close with this June, 2016 Campbell McLaurin and yourself tried to raise, or I shouldn't say try, you guys raised 2.6 billion in order to try to buy the UFC. No, no. Am I off uh, on that? I have never raised money to try to buy the UFC. I know Campbell says he's raised money for the UFC, but I think if Campbell had raised two point six billion dollars, we would have seen something very different, probably from him. But you know, I I've never raised money to try to buy the UFC from from the Fertitas or any anybody. All right. Well, with here, then we're going to close with. March 19th, 1998, Art Davey wrote a letter to Bob Marowitz and C.C. John McCain in regards to stopping the promotion. Um, when you guys received that, now 1996 is when John McCain called it human cockfighting, and now 1998, um, Art Davey publicly takes his side. Um, how did that sit with you guys? You know, Art, I thought was a snake in the grass. You know, he had tried to run an event in another country while he was working with us by saying he owned the UFC. We fired him for that. He started working with K1 and then he tried to, you know, kill the UFC, kill the sport of MMA because he was working with K1. Um, so I thought it was uh, terrible. You know, it's terrible for me when people uh, kind of uh, do stuff for money and uh, only for money. And I think that's what that that's what I thought about that. Joey, let's wrap this one up, man. Fantastic episode. Jesus. Yeah, this it's been a great episode. This is exactly yeah. what the podcast is about. I think these so, guys are gonna be like asleep listening. No, to no, wait, wait, wait. Hey guys, wait, wait. Before we wrap up, this is a quarter of what this gentleman was involved with. Like I, you know, we got in contact a couple of weeks ago. I did my research. There is so much more that we haven't touched on that's as interesting as what it is we just said. I, I honestly, dude, what you did and created changed our lives. Joey. Yeah, this is this has been a treat for us. Uh, this is exactly uh -huh. what our, our audience is into. So thank you very much for being with us. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you. It was great to talk to you guys. And you know, I like I, I told you earlier uh, before this interview. You know, I think that there are a lot of stories bandied about uh, about how things happened in the early days. And I think people just sometimes get the wrong idea. They hear one story and then they think that's probably the truth. And then they fit all the facts into it. 
you know, the bottom line for at, at SEG, you know, like we had, we were in this business and we were looking for stuff to do. And the bottom line with Horion was he had a vision for what this kind of stuff could be. And he had a front man in our baby. And that all came together. But there was a whole group of people, you know, it wasn't just one person. There was a group of people that were putting these pieces together. And I think that like, you know, for me, uh, understanding how those things worked and that we tried things and then they didn't work or they surprised us or we made this decision. Like, it wasn't just like, you know, we crapped out the answers. It was like, you know, we were trying to do something that nobody had ever done. And nobody's done since. Nobody's built a sport on pay-per-view since then. Nobody else, no other fight organization can even do successful pay-per-views, really. And, you know, that for us is still a, a legacy that stands. And, you know, uh, very hard times, sure. Uh, but also lots of fun, lots of crazy stuff. Uh, lots of stuff we would did really right. And definitely lots of things we did really wrong. But, you know, at the end of the day, we got it to the place where someone like the Fertitas and Dana could come in and they could bring their skill sets and then take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all the BS behind the scenes, like Tank Abbott, Alan Goez fighting in Puerto Rico, the Mark Coleman was, after party. So oh. I'm going to get into that in another show. I can tell you. You, you had to handle all that. Yeah. You had to handle all of it. And, you, dude, there's so much. Sincerely appreciate it, David. Honestly, if you ever, I know you've been talking to the beat, the bare knuckle guys, correct? You had mentioned that earlier in the interview. I'm not deeply in touch with them, not at all. Really. Okay, I, if you, I talked them years ago, like I said, if you ever want to come out to a live event, I got your VIP tickets, man. Absolutely on me. Appreciate that, Joey. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the interview. All right, guys, thank you. Great to take talk. care. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. This guy right here. This guy right here does our timestamps. Now you might think, okay, those timestamps, cool. Everybody, including myself, has quit doing timestamps because of what a giant pain in the ass they are. But like this interview and all these like little like add nuanced questions that are like real nerdy and real kind of intricate. When we have guys like Ty doing timestamps and myself in the past, Joey as well what happens is we just kind of look up certain names and they all just pop up and it keeps us really organized. So we can kind of push questions like this forward while spending like a fraction of the time of watching every UFC. So Ty, dude, I don't think you understand how important you are in it. I, we sincerely appreciate it. I'm happy to help. Thank you very much for having me. And he, he's wearing his lights out t-shirt. So you really know he's a team member. That's right. <laughs> I've so, been bought. I've been bought. Yeah. So, um, you know, very rarely do you get to talk to an individual that is completely unaware that they were a part of your divorce proceedings. Yeah. And, <laughs> and David Isaacs falls into that category. It was me, you know? So, I mean, the guy's been around. It's, it's crazy. Like, there's, I, I've got like probably like another two hours of dedicated questions that we could ask them. I mean, they're in the weeds type stuff. Um, but it's like, it's kind of like what we're into, you know? He, he seemed to be enjoying himself. I don't think he'd have a problem coming back on. If we gave him a little break, I could see him coming back. Yeah. I, I think we got to get Hori on next and we got to get Hori on, Hori on and Campbell. We get Campbell yes. as well. Like I've got separate questions for Campbell that aren't real applicable to either Myrowitz, Davey or, um, you know, obviously Isaacs. So real, real quick, you mentioned the KOTC logo and there's actually a story behind that. 
King of the Cage was stealing the UFC's big, you know, the logo with the big buff guy. They were written a cease and desist letter by the UFC. So Terry Treblecock went out and found a big bodybuilder guy and said, no, this is our mascot. We're not stealing your logo. This is what it's supposed to be. And that's how they had that guy sitting by the cage who was the king of the cage. That's the story behind that. So Brad, Interesting. I think Brad, Brad I don't exactly. Yeah, they found I him so they could avoid a lawsuit with the UFC. <laughs> that's fantastic. Interesting. That's fantastic. So um, we got Isaacs out of the way. We got, dude, we're, we only got, other than Horiana and, and, uh, and Campbell, we got every person. And I think we got to get our Davey back. I've got some more questions for him. Um, that was kind of hard to hear in regards to the separation. But, dude, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, he, he didn't pull any punches with that. But I guess if you're... He wasn't Selling disrespectful. Your... He wasn't disrespectful either, though. Like I think... <laughs> the, the word "snake in the grass" did come up. <laughs> I, I don't know. He 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 seemed to like him early on, but he did use that term. I don't know. Wow, when it came to writing a letter to kind of end the business, like you it... just said, no, we just left him waiting for a car. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. I, I didn't like the guy after that. Nah, you know it is what it is. It's business at that point. I mean, it, I didn't it, it, know. I, I didn't know he came out against MMA publicly, but it does sound kind of familiar. Maybe I, I do hear I, that. I've got the letter. Is this around the time he was uh, trying to push Exxon? He thought if the UFC was out of the way, I think it was like part of his operating agreement with K One would yeah. be that he would write that letter and CC John McCain. Um, but it's pretty damning. It's like you know, you know that this isn't good. Someone's going to get really hurt, and it's. I like. One of the, one I like of Art. He responds to my texts. I don't want to say anything bad, but that that sucks. I didn't know he did that. Yeah, I, and you know what, man? You got a guy that's the creator. There's co-founders, which obviously did a lot of heavy lifting. You know, to pretend like they they didn't, or to kind of look at them like their their value isn't as much is not correct but but art davy um is the creator i mean some people say horion is a creator art just repackaged it in the ufc hall of fame the word creator is under art davy's name so we're going to say art davy's a creator based on that mm-hmm. and um to be a creator and not an owner or having a piece of it oh that sucks yeah that sucks it that's gotta hurt well, I mean, it's just like, you know, those early conversations, it should have been a little bit more definitive. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it, but it's a brand new sport. Who knows? Who knows? And, and yeah. what, what Isaac said in regards to organizations not building off the pay-per-view model, he's a thousand percent correct. But if you look at what BKFC is doing, everything is going through the app, the seven ninety nine a month app. And they're like, they know they can't build through the pay-per-view model. So they're right. building through an eight dollar a month app, and it's it's that's also never been done before. So it's a subscription model rather it's, than yeah. a pay-per-view model, right? It's a little mm-hmm. different. Yeah, but but DAZN was trying to do the subscription model, and they seem to be bleeding money. So it's a tough thing to pull off. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it is. So Ty Green, you're getting these times done for this, but you're getting the times done for this bad boy. Anytime, <laughs> I'm ready to do it. I'll get to work tonight. <laughs> You can go ahead and you can leave my Frank Dukes off of the time steps. That 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 one fell on deaf ears. <laughs> I'll do the best. That, I can. that one didn't land, so avoid no. that. Uh, uh, uh. Roger that. 
So, Joey, we've got a couple other ones coming up. Um, I think we're going to do Sean Salmon. Yep. So, Sean Salmon, uh, I think he lost his ability to fight because not only did he take on a real big losing streak after his UFC tenure, but he also admitted to doing a fake fight. He was an extremely talented college wrestler. Now, I I wouldn't say a fake fight. I think he came out for the second round knowing it wasn't his night and let a guy armbar him. I don't think it was a prearranged fake fight, but we'll get into that with him. That's good, because I think the the public misconception was that he did a fake fight, but I don't think he presented it well. And I I, I will tell you, like, I think his story is going to be fascinating. I really seems do, like an man. interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about there, especially like, I mean, he was one of the hot prospects going into the UFC. So that's another good one that we've got lined up. Our Jimerson. We've also got him on the hook. We're hoping talk to him. Talk to him last night. He's very, very willing to come on with us. We just got, I'll ask him for next week. All right. Rodrigo Medeiros. Any word on him? I've not gotten back. He seems to be very busy with his young kids. I'll, I'll text him again. Okay. He's got young kids. He's got young kids. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like eight years older than me. And I think his kids are about my kid's age. So yeah, he's got little <laughs> ones, but we have a uh, Bustamante coming up. Merlo Bustamante tomorrow. We're recording. That's, him. that's a great one. Yeah. Bustamante as well. So we got some good stuff planned, but ladies and gentlemen, like, share, subscribe on iTunes. Please leave us a review that helps us with the algorithm. Our YouTube we're on the verge of becoming demonetized because they kicked off a bunch of our subscribers and our view rates have plummeted because of that. Um, I also keep getting emails from them saying that I need to advertise. So in other words, give us money or you know, no one's watching your channel. The only way we get around that is if you guys comment, uh, leave a comment in the section, even if it's just a number with a timestamp on it. Um, you know, if you guys can do that for us, I'm, I'm not saying I don't want to game anything, but um, fuck YouTube. And essentially, that's what's going that, on that, over there, Matt. That comment might not help us in the long run, but no. okay. Yeah, don't timestamp that. Don't time yeah, stamp don't do that. <laughs> so, like, ladies and gentlemen, subscribe. live, share, subscribe. Ty Green, dude, you're the man, dude. Appreciate it. Joey, welcome to the team. See you tomorrow, brother. Be good. Absolutely. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.